Let's hear God's word, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country, and they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Amen. We'll end our reading there in verse 14 of Mark 16. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we look to you today to bring understanding to our hearts as we consider your word. We acknowledge that only the great author of this word, the Holy Spirit, can so work in our hearts that we receive it with faith and with humility, that we receive it in a way that it contributes to the salvation of our souls, that it builds us up in grace and gives us an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Lord, we know we need your help for this, and so we humbly and earnestly beseech that in spite of all our unworthiness, you would help us to pay attention, to understand, to receive with faith, to put into practice, to remember what your word has for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This passage falls into three main divisions, although they're not the same size. First, you have the women coming to the tomb. Then you have the angel speaking to them, the young man speaking to them. And then you have them leaving the tomb and hastening away in substantial fear. And that seems a little bit odd. That's a little bit off. They get the best news that anybody has ever gotten. They hear from a supernatural messenger. Mark just calls him a young man, but you know from the parallels in the other Gospels that this was an angel. This was a heavenly visitor. And he tells them the greatest news you could have hoped to hear. He tells them that Jesus is risen. And they run away afraid and say nothing to anybody. Why is that? What is going on here? Well, as we approach this passage, the women are brought in again. You remember, we hadn't really heard very much about them in the Gospel of Mark 
But at the crucifixion, there was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less and of Joseph, and Salome, who had followed Christ and had ministered to him when he was in Galilee. They were there. There were other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. Now, of that group of women who witnessed the crucifixion, who stayed with Christ, so to speak, until the bitter end, two of them, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. Apparently, the other women and Salome had not followed Joseph of Arimathea and his retinue to the tomb where they laid Christ's body to rest. But two women followed so that they would know where he was. Well, by the time he was taken down, they were hurrying to get him buried before the Sabbath officially started. So that was all they could do. They could see where he was, but then it was the Sabbath day, and they couldn't do anything. There was no buying or selling. There was no working of any kind. So they waited. They waited until the Sabbath was over, and then they bought spices, but were not able to go that evening They still had to wait until very early in the morning to come. So one of the first things we see as they set out early and come with difficulties they don't know how to overcome. They don't know how to roll the stone away. They don't think that's going to be possible for them. They're concerned about how they will get access to the tomb in order to anoint Christ with spices. But they go anyway. Well, in the closing of the gospel, Mark has introduced a new group of disciples. There's been the 12, Peter and the others, who have followed with Christ, who have participated in his ministry, and who all failed, who flaked out in one way or another. And then there's the women who have remained steadfast, who have continued to be faithful. Now, commentators sometimes speculate about this a little bit. They say, why are they coming? It's useless to anoint a corpse this long after death in such a hot climate. Decomposition has already started. What these women are going to do doesn't do any good. They call the historicity of the story into question because how could they not think about the stone before they even set out? How could they set out without a plan? Sometimes you want to put commentators under a spotlight and say to them, are you human? Do you know how people work? Think about the feelings of these women who have been faithful to Christ throughout, who have followed him, who have ministered to him. Do you think that was a burden to them? No, it was a joy. They counted it a delight to do something for Christ. Well, now he's gone. He's dead. They've heard the predictions of resurrection, but they haven't believed them any more than anybody else has. So what they're expecting to encounter is a corpse. Does it do any good to sprinkle herbs or spices on a corpse? Well, no, not really. But do people who are that devoted, do people whose loss is desperate, whose devotion is therefore desperate, do they care that it doesn't do any good? No, they don't. They will go ahead and do meaningless, useless, futile services for an absent loved one. Why? because it's more painful not to, because they can't help it, because that's been the direction of their hearts with so much strength. 
How are they supposed to just stop? Well, these women were genuinely devoted to Christ. Now, there was a gaping hole in their faith, but that's true of many devoted followers of Christ. And he's going to deal with them about that. He's going to help them. He's going to get them through that. But in the meantime, we should recognize, along with Mark, the desperate devotion of these women. Christ is dead or has died. He's not still dead, but they don't know that. Christ has died, and yet their love has not ceased. Now, there's a challenge for us. There's a challenge in terms of compassion to understand the desperate forms that the devotion of others sometimes take when there's a loss, when there's tragedy. But more than that, there's a challenge to us. Do we have this kind of devotion to Christ? Of course, we're not going to be in the situation of thinking that he's dead and that's the end of the story. We won't experience that. That was unique to this moment in the history of redemption because we know he is risen. But will you remain devoted to Christ when things don't go your way? Will you remain devoted to Christ when following him leads you into suffering, into death? Will you remain devoted to Christ when it seems like that is the source of all your troubles? If you could give up your devotion to Christ, your life would be easier. I'm not saying that's always true, but sometimes that's how we feel. And sometimes that is true in times of persecution, you can absolutely make life a little bit easier by surrendering your devotion to Christ. Will you do it? Or will you cling to Christ through thick and thin? Will you cling to Christ when it seems like it's not doing any good? Will you cling to Christ when it seems useless, futile, pointless? Well, that in some ways is the test of devotion. Will you be as devoted as Mary and the other Mary and Salome? Christ is worth it. You know, whatever commentators want to criticize about the practicalities of their plan, surely you can't criticize their heart. Surely you can't criticize that their attachment to Christ was not dissolved by death. And if we knew how to understand that, if we knew how to really appreciate that, wasn't that already an indication that Christ could not truly be dead forever? God has made us to have attachments that continue. God has made us to love, not for a week or a day or a lifetime, but for eternity. If there were no resurrection of the dead, what point would there be in God building us with a capacity for unending love? But because there is a resurrection, because we will last forever, we have been so made that we can love where even death doesn't stop that. You see the devotion of these women also in the fact that they're coming out here very early, the moment they can. The sun is just barely beginning to give a little bit of light so that they can see. And what they see 
is the stone rolled away. Now, it's helpful to understand here that tombs were carved into the rock, and you'd carve a pretty good-sized cave, and then there would be either tunnels or ledges or both. And so somebody would be placed into a tunnel. So you'd walk through the arch into the opening, but then you would still maybe need to have the specific ledge or tunnel that was further carved to show you where he was. So when they see the stone rolled away, they walk in and then there's a young man and he points out to them the specific tunnel or ledge where Christ used to be, but he was not there anymore. Now this welcoming committee was not what they expected. They were alarmed, they were frightened. The angel tried to reassure them. He said, don't be alarmed. And that's characteristic. Usually when people have an encounter with an angel, if they know that that's what's happening, if it's evident that this is an angel, their first reaction is fear. This is something unusual. This is something out of the ordinary. This is something majestic. And it makes you feel uncertain, inadequate, and afraid. The angel has good news for them. He knows why they're there. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Before we move on, just stop there for a moment to let that sink in. The angel says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth. Why specify the city? Was there some other Jesus they might have been seeking? Well, for one thing, the angel is accommodating to how people normally spoke. They would often speak about Jesus of Nazareth for the sake of clarity. Jesus is the name Joshua, right? And it wasn't uncommon to find people named Joshua in Israel at the time. But of course, they knew which Jesus they were seeking. But the angel is calling up their memories, their associations. It wasn't, strictly speaking, necessary to tell them that he'd been crucified, They knew that. They were there. They saw it happen. But the angel is, so to speak, putting things in a particular theological point of view. They were seeking Jesus of Nazareth. They were seeking Jesus according to their earthly perspective and recollections of him. The last bit of information they had was that he was crucified and buried. And in their unbelief, They didn't know the next part of the story. The angel reminds them of all of that. All of that was true. All of that remained true. But now there was another fact. Now there was an additional perspective. That additional perspective is that Jesus has risen. Jesus of Nazareth, that phrase, that statement... Every fact that is associated with that is true as far as it goes. But in order to really know who Jesus is, you need to know that there's more than that. I don't know if at this point they understood clearly that he was the son of God. You remember, it wasn't the women who said that when Jesus died. It was the Roman centurion who said, truly, this man was the son of God. So they need to have their understanding of who Jesus is expanded. So it is the same Jesus, but they need to know more. They need to have this new fact 
and they need to appreciate what this new fact reveals. You might remember from the book of Romans that Jesus is the son of David according to the flesh, but declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. His resurrection is what will make clear, what will publicize his identity as the Son of God in power. Well, they have not personally encountered the risen Christ. They've seen he's not buried here anymore. We saw where he was laid. Two of them saw where he was laid. Those same two plus another one now see he's not there. They're told by the angel that he's risen. But what they've seen so far is an empty tomb. Now, the angel has a commission for them. He wants them to go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is going before them to Galilee, and there they will see him. Jesus had predicted that ahead of time. He told them, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. After the resurrection, go back to Galilee. I'll see you there. I don't know if they had just forgotten that. I don't know if they weren't thinking about it. I don't know if they were just discounting that completely because, you know, when somebody makes an appointment with you and then they die, you don't normally expect to keep that appointment. Of course, they should have known Jesus is not your characteristic person. Jesus is not normal in that sense. But the angel has this reminder for the women, this commission, go tell his disciples and Peter. Now, there's at least a couple of things to notice about that that are important. One is the women are given a commission as the first witnesses that Jesus is not buried anymore, that something has happened. It's their job to communicate that. As we saw last time we were in the Gospel of Mark, we all have a witness to bear based on what we know. There's also something to notice here. It was the people who were so faithful. It was the people who were so desperately devoted who first heard the good news. There's something to be said for rising early to seek the Lord. There's something to be said for coming at the first possible moment to seek the Lord. These women experienced the horrors of the crucifixion in terms of witnessing it, not in terms of undergoing it. Two of these women followed the body and saw Jesus buried. These are the women who now hear those wonderful words. He is risen. Why were they the first to get the good news? Because they were the first ones on the scene. They were the last to leave Christ and the first to come seeking him. Well, there's an exhortation for us. How long do you want to wallow in misery and despair? How long do you want to sit around licking your wounds and counting your injuries? How long do you want to go through the difficulties without any ray of light? Well, that's how long you should wait to seek the Lord. You can postpone Seeking God when you're willing to postpone comfort, when you're willing to postpone help. They were first on the scene, and so they were first to receive this blessing. 
There is no substitute for steadfastness, for diligence, for that kind of devotion that drives you to seek the Lord, whether anybody else is doing it or not. Three women came. They didn't have anybody capable of rolling away the stone, but they came anyway. They didn't let that difficulty discourage them. Oh, we have a lot to learn from these ladies. They can teach us a great deal about devotion to Christ. But then there's also something to learn about Christ himself. Who gave this commission to the angel? Well, the angel is saying what Jesus told him to say. I don't know how directly Jesus told him, but the angel is carrying out his commission from Jesus. And although the disciples were scattered, although they abandoned Jesus, although Peter denied him, yet he still has a message for them. And you notice how Peter is signaled out here, how he's identified more specifically Why so particularly speak to Peter? Well, because out of all the disciples, Peter was the one who most needed reassurance. He'd gone out and wept bitterly. He probably hadn't stopped weeping bitterly since that point. In his mercy, Jesus has a special message for the disciple who denied him most grievously. Well, what's the depth of your sin? What's the worst thing you've ever done? What's the most horrible attitude you've ever had towards Jesus in your heart? Does that make Jesus say, you know what? I am sick and tired of this person and their behavior. Never again. Never again. I'll be kind to other people, but not you. I've had it. That was not his attitude towards Peter. Peter is singled out for special mention because Peter had fallen lower than anyone else. So I want you to go back to that moment in your mind, your most horrible attitude, your worst action, your most blasphemous thought or speech. What impression did that make on Jesus? It gave him the impression that you need a special particular mercy. It gave him the impression that you need to know in a special way that he hasn't given up on you, that he is for you, that he is coming to meet you. Don't take even your biggest sin as a reason not to seek the Lord. Take it as a demonstration that he is seeking you out that he will come to you. He will show you the truth about himself. As we learn, as we hope to imitate the devotion of the women, let us also take comfort from Christ's mercy to the failing disciples. All too often, if, if you had been there, just be honest, would you have been with these three ladies or would you have been scattered like the other disciples? I think we know the answer to that for most of us. Well, let's learn to do better, but let's take comfort from the mercies. There's another lesson 
and that is that God's word is fulfilled. Christ keeps his promise. Death did not stop that. The angel says he will see you in Galilee as he said. That should have been enough. They shouldn't have needed other proofs. They shouldn't have needed other demonstrations. But God condescends to the weakness of their faith. Now, The reaction of these women is they went out quickly, they ran away from the tomb, they trembled, they were amazed. They said nothing to anyone. That doesn't mean they didn't tell the disciples. We shouldn't understand anyone in an absolute sense. We should understand anyone with reference to the immediate circumstance. While they're running away from the tomb, they're not talking to anybody, they're not stopping, they're not pigeonholing people they see on the road and saying, Jesus has risen. Well, they're not ready to say that. They're not believing it fully, at least, yet. So they said nothing to anyone in that regard. They were afraid. They didn't know what to say. They were overwhelmed. Now, that introduces a theme, and this is why we read through to verse 14, where people don't believe the resurrection just on hearing it. Because there's multiple people who are told this. The women are told this. And then when Mary Magdalene tells other people, they don't believe her. And then when two disciples tell other people, they don't believe. And so finally, Jesus appears to the eleven and rebukes them for not believing when they heard that report from others. So that's a pattern that's set up. The angel tells the women, they don't really believe it. Mary Magdalene, and so forth, on through the list there. They tell other people, and they don't believe. And you might remember that this comes to a head with the disciple we call Doubting Thomas, although I'm not sure it's completely fair to memorialize him from his worst moment. But he had said that he wouldn't believe unless he saw the Lord Jesus, unless he saw the wounds in his body, unless he stuck his hand in the wound in Jesus' side. And when Jesus appeared to Thomas, he said, because you see you have believed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Well, this is the challenge to us many, many centuries later. We haven't seen, per se, directly. We haven't seen the risen Jesus. We haven't stuck our hand in the wound in his side, but we have heard. We have heard the gospel proclamation that he is risen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Are we skeptical? Do we have questions or concerns? Do we try to turn this from something that actually happened in literal history into just a metaphor, into just a nice way that God tells us that hope is never lost or something like that. That's not genuine belief. Real belief is staking our salvation on the historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So we've had a lot of questions for ourselves this morning. Are we as devoted as the women? Are we more like the disciples? Do we know the special mercy of Christ to his people, even in their failures? Do we truly believe in the resurrection? Do we receive that angelic and apostolic message that Christ is risen? Hopefully we do. 
that doesn't make everything easy. That doesn't take away all difficulties. That doesn't eliminate every challenge to our faith. But what does it do? Well, it shows us that when the people of God were reduced to their smallest number, when they had the least going for them, when it would have been easiest to think that God, in fact, had been defeated by the powers of evil, there was more to the story than that. Christ allowed himself to be killed in order to rise. He is risen. We don't ever need to give up. Even those acts of devotion that seem useless, even that faithful service that seems utterly barren and unfruitful. Well, it's given to a Christ who is risen. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord, in the risen Lord. In anyone else, of course it would be useless. But in a risen Lord, oh, that's not useless at all. Amen.